Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we are joined by Tim Marshall, a British journalist, broadcaster and author of the Sunday Times number one bestseller, The Prisoners of Geography. Tim has worked for LBC, the BBC and Sky News, and he's become a regular foreign affairs analyst and geopolitical social commentator. Let's start by talking about Prisoners of Geography. In the introduction, you mention the land on which we live has always shaped us. Does this truism still hold relevance in the 21st century? I believe so. Um, I believe it's always been true and is still true. Now, obviously, 21st century shorthand for technology, it bends some of the bars, or at least it changes some of the, the, the dimensions of geography, but you're still factoring in geography. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. If you had a cruise missile that went X distance, well, you still have to factor in that distance. Uh, you still have to, fa- if you're refueling a plane, you've still got to factor in, well, we can't refuel it from here. Luckily, we've got Diego Garcia or whatever. So that, 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 at that level, it still matters. Uh, it still matters insofar as if you want to put boots on the ground, and there was this myth that air power would be sufficient in the 21st century, and the Americans learned the hard way that air power doesn't do it. Um, they had to put boots on the ground, and then the geography of where they were on the ground. Now, that, that's in conflict, uh, but I, th- I think these things are the same, you know, outside of the world of conflict. Geography always matters. That's exactly what we want to hear at the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the RGS. It's not why I said it, it's because I believe it. Um, so uh, you did mention technology a few times there. Mm. I was going to follow that up with asking, uh, will technology overcome some of those geographic problems? For example, satellite imagery um, and the reach of the internet. Yes, but satellite imagery, or let's say a GP, you've got a GPS system, great, you're sorted. Well, no, okay, you, you think, oh, I need to get from A to B. These are the coordinates. But if you don't know the geography and you start walking and you end up at the top of a mountain in a snowstorm, you're going to look a bit stupid and cold. You know, you need to know the geography. And, and that kicks into to everything. Of course it helps. Of course it makes a difference. But you're still... It's not going to help you uh, drill down uh, and find whatever it is you're looking for deep underground because we don't have that sort of kit yet that will find the cobalt, for example, for computers. Um, where, where I think technology will, will help, but it won't change the geography, it'll just, it'll just change the dynamics of it. I'll give you an example. Let's say AI works out how to desalinate water for free. At that point, you've got an awful lot of seawater which you can desalinate for virtually free. Excellent. That also means that the water needs of places like India and Pakistan who quarrel about water, that tension between them is done away with. But that doesn't mean you forget all about water and where water is and how you transport it from A to B. The the geography is still absolutely front and centre in all that. You've simply used technology to to harness what is on the earth. It, 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 It doesn't ever get rid of geography. It simply changes how you think about it. So it's, it's inescapable in some, some regards. Hey, this is where we live. Yeah. <laughs> it's inescapable. Yeah. 
So with that, with that idea, um, if I asked you um, what was the most influential landscape, would you be able to answer? So I'm thinking about the Himalayan mountain range that you mentioned in your book, yeah. uh, Separates China and India, that has prevented war, the Sahara dividing North and Central South Africa, and the Amazon underpinning the Brazilian economy. I, I don't think you can actually give a proper answer, because you're talking about a what-if of history. So if the Himalayas didn't exist and it had been flat ground between the two great powers, India and China, well, A, they wouldn't have grown up as distinct to each other, uh, and so we don't know what would have happened. But, I mean, what-ifs are fun, and so it's a try-and-answer. And one of the things that has had a huge effect, I think, is the Sahel and the Sahara. Because... When you, in ancient times, the exchange of ideas that was coming mostly, let's say, from China, uh, across the Silk Route into uh, the Middle East, th through the cent Central Asian Republics, and then on eventually into Europe, and there were also ideas going back uh, eventually, and that crisscrossed east-west, east-west, but they didn't go south, and the ideas and cultures of Africa didn't come north, and that is because of this huge belt of extremely hot, arid land that you couldn't get through and it wasn't well they only really got through it 2,000 years ago and at that point slowly the exchange of ideas began to happen so I, th I think that has had a massive massive effect on a huge huge part of the world which is to say uh, the, the central band of the world and then that massive continent to the south of it. So is isolation one of the main reasons for Africa's difficulty with development then? This idea that you have a, a barrier of the Sahara blocking north to south interaction? Isolation is, is part of it, not just the isolation of, of that band of, of desert, which, as you know, stretches from you know, the Atlantic to the Red Sea. But it's also the internal divisions. I mean, if, if you look at, at Europe, there's reasons why the Georgian language and culture is so distinctive, and it's because it's such a mountainous place. Same for the, let's say, um, uh, the, the Russian republics like Dagestan, you know, which have different languages just, just over the border from places very close to them. And it's because they were isolated. Now, in Africa, you have the same thing with the mountains, but you also have the jungles. You also have a lot of rivers that have a lot of waterfalls, which means that you, know, you can't use them to, to trade and, and develop, and, because, and so places developed more in isolation than uh, they did elsewhere. I mean, I'm painting with broad brush strokes, but yes, isolation, and in the wider sense, the geography of Africa has absolutely been, been uh, at the forefront of why it's developed the way it has. Do we misrepresent the continent? Is Africa sometimes misunderstood because of misrepresentation, for example, yeah. the use of the Mercator map or Eurocentric? Oh, yeah, well, both of those things, I think. Um, I mean, for understandable reasons. Mercator, because, you know, when the person who invents a completely accurate map will make a fortune, because, you, you know, you know why. Um, Eurocentric, yeah, I mean, um, sometimes when, I, when I, uh, I give talks to junior schools and I put a map on, which for shorthand is the upside-down map of the world, and then I say, okay... What's the first thing you think about this map? And all the kids, of course, always put, it's upside down. They say, no, it's not upside down, which, of course, sparks them to hopefully start thinking. So, of course, yeah, it is a Eurocentric view. And we've put England, Britain, UK, bang in the middle of the world when it isn't. Um, but also there are those old prejudices um, about the cultures of Africa. I mean, forgive me, but for going all the way back to colonial times and the idea of the savage... Whereas what was going on over, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of years in Africa was different cultures, different empires with a different legal systems. And it's taking a long time to, to get past that. I mean, Africa still, many parts of it are still developing uh, and they are struggling to develop for many, many reasons and geography is part of that. I'm currently reading The Rift by Alex Perry. Uh, I'm not sure if you've, you've heard, oh, of, heard of it. I've heard of it, I've not read it. Yeah, um, uh, who says that Boko Haram have flourished due to the British colonial policy of undereducation in the north of Nigeria. I wondered whether education also features as well as the landscape in influencing development. Yes, education is, is an important part of development or not development, but I, I personally wouldn't highlight it as a reason for Boko Haram. Um, Boko Haram is, is, you know, the sort of ISIS view of Islam. Well, that sprang mostly out of Saudi Arabia, which is a, a rich country with a, an education system. So I don't buy it partially for that. But also, Boko Haram now operates very much in Mali, has uh, gone into an alliance with a similar group that's in northern Mali, up past Timbuktu, they have made an alliance with a similar group in Niger. They have made an alliance in Chad, and I don't think any of this really relates directly to the lack of education during the British times. Now, I know where this is coming from, and, and it is true. The British tended not to travel too far up north from the south, and, and the, the education system that was put into place in what became Nigeria was mostly in the south, which is also why it's Christian. And the Arabs were coming down from the north, which is why that's the north of it is mostly uh, Muslim. But I, I really think... And, and I don't mean to do the author an injustice at all, because I haven't read the detail of what he's saying. But, you know, there are so many reasons why Boko Haram exists. Uh, Parfa is even ethnic, you know. They, they do tend to draw from one particular ethnic group up in the north. So... Um, while it's probably a factor, I wouldn't highlight it. So complex, as well as the whole continent in its, in its evolution. Um, will oil save Nigeria, in your opinion? No. Nope. <laughs> Short answer. Yeah. I mean, resource curse, I think, is a better, uh, better applied perhaps elsewhere than Nigeria. Um, and obviously the oil money is, is helping, and Lagos looks like downtown Manhattan at night these days. You know, it's a vibrant, modern city. I mean, there's a slight resource curse given that uh, down in the Delta you have these different gangs and what are called terror groups, um, and that's because of the oil. No, I, I don't think it's going to save it, primarily because the wealth is still not shared around in anywhere near the degree to which is required to keep a population satisfied with the way things are, are shared out. I mean, it really isn't. Corruption is just so embedded and rampant in Nigerian politics and, and business. And then more than anything is the population growth, set to double. So I, I, I'm not convinced that the oil revenue, which I think is about 10% of the economy, will be enough to save them, although I do think with that oil money, if they did spend it better, they would have a happier population. I mean, the, the people of Kuwait tend to be somewhat more um, quiescent with their government than many people in Nigeria are. You mentioned a resource curse there. If we shift our focus slightly to Central Africa to look at the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, 
has the resource curse struck? It's yeah. When when I said that, that is more what I had in mind. I mean, it's you know, it's not it's not as simple, obviously, as you know, just oh, they are cursed because they have resources. Because you know, it wasn't written in the stars that it had to develop the way it has. That the that colonialism had to put the country together in the shape it is and throw all the different ethnicities together. And then following on from that legacy of colonialism, then the incredibly bad governance that's been there ever since. But it, it is cursed, given those things, that now it does help to fuel the war. You know, the biggest gang in the region goes and kills as many people as they can, starts to control the cobalt industry or the gold bit or whatever it is overseen by by sometimes uh, bigger powers outside i don't mean states necessarily although some of the african states are playing there um and so in that in that way yeah i, th I think they have been cursed by their resources because um it, it has it has elongated the length of time that that drc is a battleground you mentioned there that other african states are playing and are, and are involved in the drc is there a scramble within the continent as well as for it? Yeah, the, the scramble within Af Africa is a phrase I used in Prisons of Geography. I mean, it, it is not of the scale of colonialism, and it's not of the scale of the new... Um, I, I'm not sure it is neo-colonialism, but it, of the new grab for Africa's riches, which is being undertaken by China, Russia, and, and other outside powers. But within Africa itself, I mean, obviously, you know, it's no different to any other part of the world. There are dominant states and aggressive states and expansionary states, not so much for territory. But South Africa is an example. They are part of this scramble in that, you know, they are deliberately and, and understandably developing that, well, it's pretty much developed, the corridor that leads up towards Central Africa and taking in places like Botswana, to a lesser extent Zimbabwe, Zambia, going all the way up to Tanzania towards the Great Lakes region in order to develop the South African economy. And they want a part of the, the riches that are there. Also, going back to the DRC, places like Uganda and South Africa and, and one or two other states are also involved there because they feel their interests are there. You know, just as, let's say, Turkey uh, interferes with the Syrian uh, conflict, so African, some African countries interfere in the DRC conflict. So interesting you mentioned Turkey there. Um, the involvement of China in Africa has been well covered. And, of course, we've touched upon colonial powers in Nigeria. It's been interesting over the last couple of years to notice... French involvement mm. in Mali that you mentioned earlier on with paratroopers going in 2018. Who are the actors oh, um, well, that you think in, in what, Well, I mean, you know, as you know, there was Francophonie, and I think there still is. They've come off the, the Franc, their version of the Franc as a monetary system and have got going a, a, a local, regional system. But, but there's the G5S, the, the group of five Sahel countries that have come together. I mean, it depends how you count it. There's up to 12 Sahel countries, but the, the core ones... And in Mali, I think it was 2012, there was a sort of Islamist insurgency broke out. I mean, it's, it's not as simple as just Islamist. Sometimes it's just, you know, ethnic groups that have always had issues. Um, and then you, you can take on the mantle of, of ISIS or say, yeah, we swear allegiance. You know, it, it's, not, it's not core classic uh, ISIS. But there was this insurgency. The French came in at the invitation of the Malian government to try to train their army and, and also do a bit of counter-terrorism. 
It hasn't worked. They started with a couple of thousand. Uh, it went up to 4,000. Last year, it went up to 4,600. And just this year, Macron has, has signed off on another, I think it's 600 troops. And, and I think it's now 5,100 troops. And hardly anyone knows about this. And they're operating in Chad, Niger, uh, and Mali along the border regions at the invitation, I should say, of the G5S. And France still feels very much that this is a region in which it has influence. But a new way of thinking has evolved, and Macron sees the Sahel as a battleground of EU interests, by which I mean he feels that if they don't stabilise the region, and they're not winning this battle at the moment, and if they don't help these countries to stabilise, A, one or two or more of the countries will implode, and there will be an Islamic State created, which of course will be a force to project violence elsewhere, especially down into Nigeria, Cameroon, places like that. But also, given that there's already about 900,000 displaced people, there will be even more, and some of them will become refugees, and you will see a huge influx of people then heading up north again, through North Africa, and into Europe. So he actually sees this as, as, a, as an EU foreign policy priority, which is why the French are so involved militarily, and hardly anybody else has stepped up. The Czechs have just said they'll send 60 troops. Uh, I think the Brits have a couple of aeroplanes there, and I think Denmark has a very small presence. So the EU as a body is not really supporting Macron on this. That's a fascinating update on, on the prisoners of geography. Well, it's it, about two years ago, aid agents, people I know in the aid agencies, you know, they started saying to me, you need to have a look at the Sahel. And so I started to look at the Sahel in more detail. And, and it, you know, it just gets worse. It's not getting better down there at the moment. The Americans are thinking about pulling out to concentrate on their new area of Southeast Asia, and the French are begging them not to because they have fantastic surveillance facilities and equipment. But at the moment, uh, Trump looks like he's minded to maybe pull them out of there. So touch and go. Yeah, it, it's honestly, the Sahel is, is really something to concentrate on. Thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.